Welcome to Everything Hurts, where we talk about everywhere the life sciences meets the biological sciences. My name's Dan, and uh, this is James Heathers. Hello. First topic I was thinking, obviously, uh, HRV. You know, what do you do when someone comes up to you saying, I want to do HRV for my research? What do you... Uh, Really? (laughs) you, You don't want to talk about that? (laughs) or you just you're replaying all the conversations that you've had oh i'm thinking about doing a hiv study uh yeah there's a there's an an awful lot of people who uh do so you've 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 seen this up close many times with people who are doing uh i'm i'm doing a psychology but i'm i'm thinking of adding one of those physiologies (laughs) i've heard so much about um can we sling in a bit of the physiologies Perhaps some of the heart rates will be opposite. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an approach which is a, a source of considerable frustration for a number of reasons. And one is the fact that people in general, I would say 75% of the people that I talk to who want to do this stuff are interested in it not because they have some kind of background in biological psychology they've read about it on the internet and they know it's a thing and they've seen a paper and it, it it's it feels intrinsically interesting rather than it's something that they've been trained to or introduced to now obviously that's not a problem but it always means you're starting from scratch i don't know what happens with biological psychology in undergraduate classes everywhere but the it's the uh history. it's the yin and yang of sympathetic parasympathetic Oh, see, you're, you're, you're winding me up. He's doing this on purpose. If you're listening, he's doing that on purpose. Uh, I, I don't know what happens in uh, a number of continents now where I've, I've talked to people about this. I don't know what happens with the undergraduate education in biological psychology. It is just missing the biology part. <laughs> It's a huge gaping hole where the biology should be. And it's kind of embarrassing uh, if you want to be not a life science, but something that's in the health or medical sciences. Uh, It gets a lot better when you come out the other side uh, into medical science proper. Obviously, cardiologists work well with it. There's some psychiatry stuff that's not terrible. But the psychiatry stuff not being terrible is usually predicated on the fact that psychiatrists have done normal medical intern resident degree training into basic cardiac physiology, basic autonomic physiology, that kind of stuff. So it's no, it's no mystery to them. You can lay things out very fast. Uh, psychiatrists go, that fits exactly with six years of my life. But as psychologists go, oh, that's that's fascinating. So uh, so it goes blip. What's that mean? Um, and you you start every conversation from scratch. Do you not find that? How often do you have to explain what you do from first principles? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, of course, like you say, speaking to psychiatrists, they have this general idea of what it is. Um, but generally, it's the people with the psychology backgrounds who are kind of like, okay, cool. You know, we we have uh, you know parasympathetic function. Like, let's measure it. You know. Oh, it's, if if only if only that were true, it's one of it's one of those things. It wouldn't wouldn't it be convenient if it worked the way that people think it does? But it's such it's such a quagmire. I don't even remember what your original question was. We haven't we haven't got as far as discussing beyond where does it begin? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the place I I feel that um when you talk about HRV in general, it really it really kicks ass in the sports sciences. I think it works much better in athletic training context for a number of reasons. Um, the main one being the fact that exercise and overtraining especially are massive autonomic stimuli. Mm. You have a very large coordinated response between cardiac output, cardiac inotropy, sympathetic outflow, uh, everything. Everything that, you can, everything that you can measure, you understand why it's there, you understand what happens with oxygen demand, why things need to be the way they are, and you understand reasonably what happens when you take someone and you flog them. Uh, so daily monitoring works quite well with HIV when it comes to predicting performance. It, comes, it works okay for predicting drop-off. Um, it works well for predicting athletic readiness stuff. It works especially well if you're completely trashed. It's very good at picking that stuff up. I don't know if it's better than just heart rate by itself sometimes. Mm. But um, the, the size of the signal, your signal-to-noise ratio is, is altered. You're not talking about, is my, is my nervous system involved in some kind of mind-body interaction that's difficult to measure? You're talking about, we took someone and we stuck them on a bike and we made them do Wingates until it changed their religion. <laughs> Did this have any kind of effect on their HRV? The answer is always yes. But have, uh, they, have they actually done... <clears throat> studies or actually assess people's performance and seeing how oh yeah yeah this look this is another this is what you get when i do hrv consulting stuff more broadly people ask about it from a number of contexts so i had to spend a very long time getting up to speed with everything in every single context and obviously there's a bigger general market for sports products but uh, to at least some degree, the fact that the market exists isn't just because it's easy to sell newfangled shit to sports people. And let's face it, they're a fantastic niche market. If you've got if you've got vitamin water or a performance band or compression socks, Vibrams. Yeah, did they, they get sued? <laughs> um, they probably. I, I think they. I think they did. But no, uh, they, they were ordered to uh, pay everyone like twenty dollars or something who had purchased Vibrams because. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. There was there was a class action. Yeah, that was the one. As far, yeah, look, most most of those things uh, that 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 happens at some point in time. Um, I think there was one for Nike Fuel Band because they were making ludicrous claims like it had you know, count your calories and paint your toenails while you were sleeping. It was, <laughs> it was absurd. It's one of the things, you, you take a physiological problem and you give it to engineers and allow them several layers of extrapolation and it just disappears uh, through the realm of what's possible into grandiose marketing claims. And you, you, you end up, uh, that, I mean, that stuff ends up in court. You throw hundreds of thousands of dollars behind uh, promoting something like that and then you get a little bit of interest and then it blows up and it becomes huge and then, you know, the full marketing department of a large company gets behind it and they sell it and claim that it's going to do stuff. And the, the insulation between having something that you can measure, building the device, using the device to take a measurement, using the measurement to make information rather than just streams of random physiological data. And then you give all of that to someone who works in marketing and say, sell that to people. You, you, it, it's not... You know, it's not a it's not a book that's promising to change your life. 
it's it's something else entirely when you are relying on it to make some kind of measurement. So uh, we're at the point now where we're actually getting professional, you know, NFL, Premier League type teams who are actually using this to monitor their performance. Is that where yeah, we're at? Um, an awful lot of them do. There's, oh, off the top of my head, there's half a dozen uh, NFL teams here that do it. Uh, the AFL in Australia, they have, uh, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different teams that have one of the devices. Uh, certainly they've been interested in it uh, since I can remember during my master's having conversations with people who were trying to get that started. Uh, Premier League teams will use anything anything to get one percent their training budgets are enormous their ability to take ideas and implement them on players in a, in a top-down kind of fashion is pretty good mm. um, considering you take somebody who's paid 150 million dollars and then you hit them with a stick and tell them what to do I, I'm, I'm very surprised that they listen but but they do uh their monitoring is probably the highest out of any league um, and of course, there's uh, runners have been doing this longer than anyone else. Um, Cross country skiers do it as well because you need to you need to monitor training zones. Uh, rowers as well. Um, anything. Look, there's a, there's a where, where you have a cardiac output that's maintained at a fairly high level, and it needs to be the training load needs to be managed over time. Mm. Uh, sports like that are very comfortable with the use of this stuff, and that goes obviously. I mean, that starts with some fellow who's doing it on the weekend and goes all the way through to the professional leagues. So yeah, yeah look, everyone's everyone's doing it. It's not much use for a lot of normal people's weightlifting, bodybuilding activity. So, so that's where it's not much use. So it doesn't really. Um, there's no evidence that it's actually an index of muscular fatigue, for instance. It's more no, hitting. Forget that. I mean, it's excellent. Other, there's. <laughs> I'm sure no, someone's man. trying to do it though. Oh, look! Everyone's, everyone's, everyone's trying to do everything. Uh, it's a good interface in that the hardware is really cheap, and when the hardware is really cheap, people will take it and attempt to innovate with it. Um, and in the failure of being able to innovate with it, uh, they'll just fib about it. Frankly, mm. I mean, say you could get amazing training indices out of an fMRI. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, why is it never going to be a good adjunct to athletic training? How much does it cost per hour in Norway? Uh, in Norway? <laughs> yeah, but, in Norway. All right. Um, I remember in Sydney, it was uh, when they got mates rates once, it was 400 Australian dollars an hour. Yeah, you're looking at about 1,000 Australian in Norway for, uh, a, yeah. for a scan. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because there are two, two consultant engineers, free herring on the way in, etc. Et there's, <laughs> a, there's a continuum that has to be met. So that's obviously a problem. You can't use something like that as an adjunct. If you're doing a study, maybe start point and end point if you're lucky. Well, you can't do, you can't, you, you don't, the point is that you don't have access. So, so the cheap machines are $1.5 million. And the, the session time is multiple hundreds, if not a thousand or more, hmm. reasonable dollars per hour. Now, I sent you a link yesterday from these amazing dudes in Hungary. I can't get anyone else interested in yeah, this. Yeah, no, uh, uh, it's CG. incredible. We can um, uh, go on. Go on. 
Oh, jinx, sir. <laughs> I was going to say, we can, um, we can actually put these links up on the show notes. So for anyone that's listening, they can uh, check it out. But um, yeah, t- uh, tell, us, tell us more about this, uh, this business card. Um, I'd, the business card is a cheap trick to make people pay attention. The hardware's fantastic, and the business card's just a, like, a cute demonstration of what's possible. They have models that are in development for a full 12-lead halter monitor, which is an electrocardiographic evaluation that lasts for 24 hours over time, where you put the heart rate monitor on and then walk around and live normally for a day. They have other longer-term monitors, which are 3, 5, and 7 lead. Uh, lead refers to the numbers of comparisons, not the amount of things that are stuck to you. And then they have a monitoring one that is a single lead, which is two electrodes and a lot of the time what we use data from. They're developing these devices for, from the medical budget perspective, what is almost nothing. They are really very, very cheap. And not only are they cheap, they're open source. I actually started off by looking up all the components that are in their circuit diagrams because my life is a rich, full adventure. And everything is... I'm the world's worst electrical engineer, but it checks out really very well. It's a very impressive, straightforward, small, modern build. Because that that's really um that's really good to see it so cheap. Because one of the one of the first questions I usually get is what what device should I use when it you know I'm going to do HIV. Always. What should I use? Yeah, and Always. it's um you know. Well, look, there's um and we use we use everything. My answer to to that, and I'm sure yours is very similar, is simply uh, put your budget to one side and think about scale. If you want to take ten thousand measurements, you're not going to buy multiple devices that are really expensive. You've got an extremely highly powered sample, you've got a good ability to make uh, a good ability to uh, make decent interpretations of data that's only reasonably accurate. So you use something that's a lot cheaper or more disposable. Um, if you need to do long-term monitoring, you're going to do it on less people because you're going, you're going to have periods of bad data. It's going to take you a day to collect the amount of data that you need off any individual person. So that question is entirely determined by the structure of your experiment. And if you can't afford the thing that's necessary, then don't do the experiment. Um, rather than, you know, oh, we need to do 24-hour monitoring and all we have is a, a, a small, normal pulse oximeter. Well, go away and get a budget. It's like saying, oh, I want, I want to do molecular biology, but uh, all we have is a newt and a, and a magnifying glass. <laughs> well, don't. Sorry, but, um, you know, you have to bring the tools inherent to the task at hand. This is, I mean, but this is something, something like this is punching holes in that continuum, though. That's the part I really like. When you think about this, $120 or something and $50 for a lead set, and you have something that's as good as this promises to be. Uh, it's got Bluetooth off, it'll store data for several days, you can run it at 1000 hertz, which is easily high enough, it's got the right ISO standard, the data comes off on microSD, I don't know the format, um, this is all extraordinarily boring for people who don't care about ECGs, but people who do <laughs> HIV research, this is going to be, I feel, a li- the people I feel sorry for is that Finnish company who just made a wonderful compact ECG, now these guys are coming out with something that's half the money in open source. Oh, wow. 
the, uh, the Mega Electronics, is that the group you're talking about? Mega, yeah, that's them. We actually, um, our group actually picked up two or three of the devices, and that's what we're collecting now. Data quality. I, I love their hardware. Um, we, we have it in, um, the, the, I think the guys in Wollongong bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to use one before I left Australia. It is, it is business, that stuff. It's really good. Mm. What are you using them for, though? So we're using it for um, people with PTSD and trauma, and we're measuring HRV pre and post group therapy over the course of uh, six weeks, I think. So it's going to be interesting to see that. But the one thing that I'm really interested in that we're looking at is a comparison between resting state, where participants are sitting there doing nothing, um, which for someone with a psychiatric illness, particularly with anxiety, is actually really hard to do. Um, and we're also getting them to do the uh, the plain vanilla task where they're counting all these yep. squares. Yeah, so mm. it's going to be uh, very interesting to see because uh, I've got this hunch that the uh, the reductions in HIV that we see in uh, in psychiatry, are, a lot of it's just due to people just being anxious, just sitting there and having an experimented stare at them while they're while they're collecting the data. So yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. Um, that that comparison is going to be uh, super super interesting. I always wondered, I mean, these are very prosaic questions, but when they're not measured, they leave you with a certain sense of disquiet. When we had the, the lab at Sydney, there were people who would sit there, the door open versus door closed, and then facing the door versus facing away. I always wondered how more anxious I was making people when they sat in a chair <laughs> facing a wall. With the door closed behind them. It's like uh, the naughty Me chair. potentially staring at the back of their head. It is a lot like the naughty... It's the naughty Time step, out. isn't it? Time yeah. out for psychophysiologists. So, I mean, what does that do to your within subjects changes when people who are congenitally anxious start off anxious in a baseline condition and then you are making them allegedly more anxious with some kind of manipulation? They're going from being already anxious to having something happen to them. The normal people who sit there like a pound of mints and don't pay the slightest bit of attention through their own interpretation of a task. These questions we never get to fully answer, and that's one of the reasons that I don't like working in psychology anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's not very fair of me, is it? Is that fair? That's fair. It's fair-ish. It's got its merits. Well, you've 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 stepped you've stepped off as well. You're now officially in a psychiatry department. I am a, a good fit for you. I am. I'm assuming you don't miss experimental psychology. Yeah, not as much. Still kind of dabbling in it a bit, but um, no. <laughs> <laughs> just just for fun on the just for fun on the weekends. No, so it's mainly psychiatry, mainly dealing with uh, as populations. Uh, you know. We just finished our autism trial, which is great. So. Charming. Yeah, had a look at the ECG signals, looking very, very clean, but uh, obviously waiting on the blindings to see who was on what medications and what treatments. But mm. Yeah, uh, what medications were involved? Oxytocin. Ah, charming. Yes, yes. oxytocin. You told me about this. this yes. What happens when you're busy? You know, which, which trial was that? I don't remember. Oh, I remember now. That trial there. So this one's going to be great because we're looking at uh, a high dose and a low dose of oxytocin. You know, yep. here we have one of these, these fields where a lot of people think that, hot, that more is better. So, mm. you know, you have the case where it's almost an arms race of seeing how much can we actually administer 
Um, but uh, we're thinking of going the other way and seeing what is the lowest possible dose um, that you're actually going to see an effect with. So, you know, it's one thing to look at uh, social cognitive responses, but, um, you know, let's look at physiology. Let's see what's happening. Um, of course, we're, we're doing uh, HRV, ECG the entire time. Um, blood pressure pre and post um, may actually see some differences there. Um, I mean, we, we do have, a, a, you know, we have a population that's given oxytocin a lot, which is uh, women in labor. Mm. So there's a, there's a rich, uh, rich data set, maybe not, um, you know, data that's actually collected, but just speak to obstetricians and they'll tell you, yeah, blood pressure actually reduces after you administer, uh, administer oxytocin during labor. So, you know, there's a lot of observational stuff out there, but um, not as much uh, experimental. Right. Do you know what that reminds me of? Yeah. Melatonin. What's an appropriate dose of melatonin? Totally depends on who you ask. Do you know what the spread is for commercially available melatonin supplements? What are we talking? It goes from 0.2 milligrams to 20. Okay. They're the individual sizes of tablets that you can buy. And you can get sublingual versions and uh, in a solution, in a tablet, etc. Now, as far as I remember, there are some fairly substantial differences between how much you need at any given point in time, depending on your sleep cycle, and how much uh, the recommended dosage is. In other words, it, you're having exactly the same situation where you're you're attempting to guess what the right amount is hmm. uh, because you're not exactly sure what the method of action is. Now, I hope I haven't just wildly maligned someone's research <laughs> for the last 10 years. So the point is not that I, I don't know if, if any of those details are 100% correct. The point is that... The, the commercially av- available thing that you can buy differs in dosage by a factor of 100. I mean, if that happened to aspirin, you'd get ulcers at the click of your fingers. So you've got, here's 300 milligrams. Here's, like, aspirins is like in a bowl of cereal and you eat them with milk. <laughs> you know? Are you in the, the same situation? Um, I was thinking of getting some oxytocin and trying it on myself, like uh, anxious anxious mothers do. Yeah, I'll, yeah, that study is just crying out to be made. You know, go on Amazon, go on those websites, <laughs> get some oxytocin. It's so much, isn't it? Get some oxytocin, do some LCMS and actually see what is the actual dose. Mm. Is it oxytocin? Uh, I mean, one of the things that I saw is um, in California, you can actually join these oxytocin parties. Yeah. Oh, for the love of God. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. So what happens is sensible you, voice. <laughs> Let me guess. Everyone sits in a room and they wear pajamas, and everyone takes oxytocin and they hug each other. And uh, it's uh, incredibly yep. adorable. Yeah, it could only happen in California. Yeah, oh. that that is that is basically the story. So, uh, I mean, a number of questions here. First thing is that people basically report effects um, instantaneously, which is impossible. Yes, that's problematic. <laughs> uh, what's the normal timeline? Forty-five to sixty minutes. About that, anywhere yeah. from thirty to thirty to forty-five, and that and that's when you're getting peak concentrations. You're getting peak concentrations in the brain after, um, yeah, thirty thirty to forty. Uh, secondly, um, <laughs> I've probably tested oxytocin on you know 
over a hundred and spoken to colleagues or that have done double that. And, and of all these experiments, not one have people been able to guess beyond chance what they've actually been given. You can't feel it. People don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, clearly a placebo effect here. Oh, really? So the oxytocin may not exist in the first place. Uh, they take a non-determined amount of it via a method that may or may not affect their blood concentration directly. Well, um, and it, then they immediately, and then they immediately feel a benefit. Yeah, they think that might be a placebo. <laughs> I mean, do you want to backtrack on that rather stunning and outlandish claim? Well, I would, I would love to see some. I'm sure there's a video floating around uh, online. But yeah, so oxytocin parties, and you know, you have a lot of people buying this online. Uh, apparently, it's a if huge. You're going to it if you're going to an oxytocin party, and you can hear me. <laughs> someone is taking your money and exchanging it for happy feelings you can give yourself. Now, get a get a cat for Christ's sake. Okay, so we have a situation where people are actually now using oxytocin in placebo studies. It's that much of a strong placebo that people are coming in, coming to a research scanner, and they're going, "Okay, we're going to give you two sprays: one's placebo, one's oxytocin." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they they give people some. Oh, and just just for a safety thing, we didn't give you some literature about oxytocin and what it can do. People are reading this like this sounds fantastic. They hop in the scanner, and you're actually getting some pretty. Uh, pretty interesting both physiological effects but also behavioural effects and people are convinced they've actually been given the oxytocin even though it's placebo so you know it's, it's getting and a lot of my participants when they come in when you know they, they know a ton about oxytocin they've, they've read mm-hmm. up about it a lot and um, uh, I remember in prior studies I'd, you know, I'd ask people you know, what, do you, what, do, what do you think you've been given and they'll be like oh you know it must be oxytocin I, uh, I felt um, you know very very mu- much more attached to my, to, my, to my wife and I couldn't stop hugging her I'm like well alright back, uh, back to HRV um, <laughs> <laughs> bit of there yeah. um, alright so someone's come to you you know you've, you've told them what you want to do you know when it comes to devices what, what other advice would you give to someone who's come to you saying yep I want to collect HRV for my, for my research I'd say pay my consulting fee <laughs> you mean after that after that <laughs> <laughs> um, okay look yeah that's, I, I do have one of those because this is, like I said, you end up doing background. This takes an inordinate amount of time. And there's an awful lot of people who need help. Uh, and, yeah, it can, be, it can be a hell of a learning curve for, for people who don't have a, a direct background in it. So I want to use HRV and I've got some non-specific project. You need to make very sure in the initial sense that what you're measuring with your variability of the heart is in any way related to the thing that you want to measure. People have the most extraordinarily abstract ideas and try and connect it to. Oh, uh, I heard this measures the nervous system. So uh, I got people and they did a face-to-face group discussion paradigm and I want to see if they're stressed afterwards. That happens so much. Yeah, um, it's, it's a little bit like, um, uh, words, words fail me to try and come up with a reasonable analogy. It's like saying, um, it's like you leave the house in the morning and the entirety of the day happens in between. And then you come back at the end of the day and 
I ask you specifically if you were annoyed by someone in a yellow shirt. And sometimes you were, and the vast majority of the time, if you're in a terrible mood, it's got nothing to do with a hypothetical yellow-shirted person. It's for some other reason. The fact is that I'm, I'm asking a reasonable enough question, but the tool that I'm using to address the problem is wildly insufficient. It's only insufficient, say, for instance, if you worked in construction and everyone had a yellow shirt. Yes, I did plan that analogy. Don't look at me like that. So, when you're measuring something like stress, or task engagement, or desire, when people say things like, oh, I want to measure emotional engagement, like, oh, why don't, you just, why don't you just measure some stuff? You have, to, you have to drill these things down into the bedrock on which the psychological concepts are built. You know, mm. there's some amazing papers that compare the results of different stress tasks that have got different stressors in them. What happens when we uh, tell people that they uh, face a camera and their speech is going to be graded by professional speech graders? What happens if we sit them there and then they have to give a speech to three people who just stare at them the whole time looking like they want them to fall through the floor? Uh, what happens if we threaten we're going to hurt them? What happens if we actually hurt them? What happens if we, uh, we have a thermode and we burn them a bit? What happens if we uh, give them a task and the task is blasting them with white noise and telling them that they're, they're getting everything wrong? What if they're a highly perfectionist person and we give them a task that they can't possibly get right and then tell them that they're in the lowest third of people as they do the task? All of these things work in the right context for the right people under the appropriate definition of what a stressor consists of. Mm. And you can't just take your one of choice or the one that's convenient and bang it up against what you think is a reasonable measure of an uh, uh, dependent variable. Yeah. It's, yeah. So you have to do, I mean, say, say we're going to do something, but it's like a, a group dynamic thing and there's groups that are designed to go bad and there's groups that are designed to go good. And it's a, something a management psychology people love d doing studies like this. When are you going to take the measurements? During? Yeah, it's tricky. During, while, people, while people are stressed? Well, that's hard. Why? Because they're talking. And what does talking do? Well, it completely changes their respiratory dynamics. What does that do? Well, it completely changes their HIV. Because it's changing their inspiration and expiration cycles, which is the major source of short-term HIV changing over time. Mm. Okay, so we'll wait till they're quiet. But when they're quiet, are they being stressed out at present? Well, maybe not so much. But it happened just before, so surely they'll still be hypothetically stressed. How fast do people get over it? Well, these are business professionals. They get over it more or less straight away. So are you measuring the right thing? <laughs> on and on and on these questions go. Yeah, no, it's a can and of while worms. The studies, while the studies are very easy to run, while we have excellent access to things like basic physiological measures, the vast majority of your time should be spent making sure that you have a biologically plausible reason to run your study. Running the studies and doing the analysis isn't hard. Doing something like paying me to do the analysis is even easier because it will take me 72 hours and it'll take you three months. Yeah? Mm. Well, if you say right now, say we take, uh, say you did a psychological experiment in Norway uh, by, what is it today? It's Tuesday. Yeah. It's Tuesday night there. 
Say you ran it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We could program something now. You could run that in the next three days and send me the marked data on Friday night. How long would it take me to have summary statistics and uh, normal assessment statistics of everything, the whole analysis done? Oh, sections. Well, if it's clean data, not long at all. The weekend. Yeah, easy. So by this time next week, we'd be into writing the paper. Hmm. Okay, well, if that's the case, then why aren't we writing a study every two or three weeks? Ethics. <laughs> Ethics, recruitment, and the huge one, whether or not you, you can get it funded in the first place on a rationale that you can sell to someone. Yep. And then you put all of those to one side, and a bigger problem is behind it. And the bigger problem is the way that we've set this up, does it have any intrinsic meaning in the first place? And you spend a very, very long time trying to figure out whether or not you've had the right idea. Hmm. You can surround that with to some extent. What if we run a lot of people? What if we have a lot of conditions? What if we what if we have a you, you you know exactly how we do this? We have a series of conditions, and the one at the right is extreme, and the one at the left is particularly unextreme. And we run people on all levels of these conditions. So look, a, a, a stress task. Hmm. Say we're going to blast people with white noise and they're doing a task where they are forced to make mistakes, which means they're forced to be punished by a task. Now, is that a form of stress? Yes. Can you appropriately measure it with HRV? Perhaps. But we can get away with something by saying, what if they have to mistake, what if they have to make a mistake every third response? And they're basically just sitting there in a, in a sea of being blasted by experimental Japanese noise music, you know? And their eardrums are bleeding and they just want to go home and it's terrible. Will you get a between subjects kind of change? Yeah, you probably will. Will you get a within subjects change from sitting around and getting nothing wrong? Almost definitely. Doesn't mean it's meaningful, but just as a matter of... Uh, one of the ways around conceptual difficulties is by uh, what I call the spinal tap method, right? <laughs> the, yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm in a different mind space because we're actually planning on doing some actual spinal taps in our, uh, in our unit. And no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, not yeah. the lumbar puncture kind. The, these these the, amps go to 11. Yeah, okay. That's right. This experiment goes to 11. Go on. What, what was your analogy? That is the analogy. It's That's the analogy. Tap. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I knew that. These amps go to 11. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you just make 10 louder? These amps go to 11. <laughs> have, you done, have you done an experiment like that where you know it's just unavoidable for, you know? It's like we've made a stress condition and we're pretty sure everyone will be stressed by it. We, we did that, remember? Yeah. Like our, uh, our shock experiment. It's easy enough to do. Yeah. Yeah, now how do you do it in the shock experiment? That was, that was, pretty, that was pretty easy. Everyone gets shocked at the start. Everyone gets the electricity. And they sit there and go, ow, are you kidding? Yeah, that's going to be your punishment if you screw this up. Now, do the task. And at that point in time, they get absolutely no electricity whatsoever. No, it's an excellent they, design. They, they got, um, I remember we oh, tried that. They, they got one to remind them because I think a few people got, uh, got wise to the fact they weren't actually going to get shocked. Ah, uh, yep. So yes, we right. uh, we you're went right. went back to the committee and asked if we could, uh, if we could pretty please do one. Can we give them one? The committee said yes, and uh, no. I think what we did was we we found the the hardest question 
uh, at least from the norm data, and we mm. gave everyone a shock at that particular question. At least did a, you give it about sort of thirty, forty percent of the way through? Yeah, about that, about thirty percent of the way through. So yeah. I think it was question six out of thirty-four. So you yeah. know, striking Which means everyone. That's the thing. It's like we're not lying to you. You just got it wrong. Yeah. we gave you one that's almost um, it's impossible for you to get it right. Exactly. That one's and got like a twenty percent success rate. Yeah. 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 So you 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 hit him with it and. Uh, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, so it doesn't solve the problem of, like, is that the right kind of stress? But we made that determination by reading all the literature around anticipatory anxiety and what happens when you shock people. Mm. Yeah. And how long did that take? What, data collection? No, how long did figuring out that was the right model of experiment to use in that situation take? Oh, until people told us they were guessing they weren't going to get shocked. Did some piloting a few weeks. There you go. Yeah. So this is, yeah. So when people come to you, and this is, I'm going to throw your original question back at you. When people come to you and say, I'm going to measure X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I'm going to throw some HRVs at it. Yeah. What do I what's the, what, what's the answer? What's the answer that we just gave there? I said, figure out whether or not you've got a right idea. Pilot it. Got to pilot it. Away, do, a lot of, do a lot of reading. Figuring out if what you've said makes any conceptual or methodological sense, and then try it again. Yeah. And engage very, very closely with what you're actually doing. This isn't try it till it works and then only publish the thing that works. You should report the fact that you piloted it. You should report the fact that you changed it. I mean, sometimes you, you, it, you, can, get, you can get caught up by that, though. Have you ever put in a detail that you thought you're being honest and pertinent and interesting, and then you've got, had something reviewed, and the reviewers are going, oh, oh, take that out. It looks ridiculous. It's so many times. It, basically, every single paper I submit, you know, I'm thinking, mm. I'm doing the right thing. I'm putting extra information here. I'm putting supplementary information. I think I had yeah. one reviewer going, um, this, um, you know, this table has no... Uh, no space, you know, this should not be included. And then, then I pointed them to the actual journal requirements, which, which specifically said this consort diagram actually needs to go inside. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just the, the, common frust- the common frustration of a researcher. But yeah, it happens all the time, putting in mm-hmm. extra information, um, thinking that you're doing a good thing, but uh, you're not writing the paper that the reviewer wanted. Mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed in uh, multiple experiment papers... Yeah. When you get through to the very end, sometimes there's two, three, four experiments in a series. A lot of the time, you realize that the paper has been reviewed, sent back, and then assessed again or accepted nine months later. You know that that condition three or condition four, the ultimate of the experiments, has been done by people sitting in their labs going, oh, for fuck's sake, this again. Yeah, yeah. They always seem the sample size is a little smaller. The methods are a little bit more, a little bit more difficult to believe. Like they just sort of shoehorned it in there. <laughs> but I mean, you know, they gave it a little bit of a helping hand. I have noticed this many times in multiple experiment papers that there is a certain. If someone's gone and, and well, I know what the the right thing to be a serious and sensible reviewer is to require people to do more work, and they do it in the same way that a sulky teenager would do his maths homework. <laughs> well, I actually had, um, we did our, um, our oxytocin trial. We had people, it was a crossover trial, uh, two different doses, intravenous oxytocin, intravenous blood collection, saliva collection, MRI, the whole thing. It took us about six months to collect it. It goes out to the reviewers and the review, one of the reviewers was like, oh, I think you should collect a few more, a few more participants. <laughs> 
outrageous. Yeah. yeah, outrageous. But I think when you're doing something like social psychology or you're just presenting things on a screen and they can be done by undergraduates, sure. If it's not believable, if you have tiny sample sizes and you're promising the world with these enormous sort of common D's effects, which just don't seem plausible at all. Yeah, sure. But no, you can definitely read it. I think even in normal papers, you can absolutely, almost, you can almost give me any paper, you can almost guarantee in the discussion section, reading limitations and you're like, you, you didn't write that originally. You can, you can almost hear the begrudging tone of them putting in, mm. you know, oh yeah, maybe we have to consider this. Like it's, it, it's pretty clear. But sometimes, sometimes you can see it where there's a, a list of very reasonable objections, and you say, "Well, look, um, while this was appropriately powered, um, we're not happy with the cell size and the subgroup analysis. Um, it's, it's just impossible to do. We're trying to recruit patients. There's only so many people yeah. with an anxiety disorder we can study. Um, we we don't like the fact that it disagrees with these other results. And then uh, on the end of this very reasonable." A uh, series of self-criticisms, which is my favorite part to write of a study, because you know, by the time I finish the study, I'm bored to my back teeth of every single thing about it. I've already done three other things. I absolutely hate going back to my own stuff. So critiquing it is the most fun you can have in the whole paper. But after the list of critiques, there's one extra critique stuck on the end that is some. It's gone sensible remark, sensible remark, interesting self-reflection totally boneheaded inclusion for absolutely no reason and you know that final that final objection was something that was a real reviewer to moment absolutely said, you, know, you know that could be wrong if you put that on the end but no and but you put it on and go oh anything to keep you happy you pedant <laughs> but i think the what's interesting is now that a lot of journals are actually um making the reviewer and author responses transparent we actually have a paper under review um in a journal that's doing that where when you actually publish the journal eventually, you can actually read through and see, okay, what did the reviewers um, request and how did the authors respond? How has the actual paper changed over time? Did the reviewer ask them to cite themselves? You know, but um, when... Oh. Yeah, that, that, that old chestnut. Uh, I've, I, th- there, there are two forms. There are two forms of that. And I think that reviewers in general get a lot of... Uh, get a lot of stick, go, oh, oh, you don't need to go back and into history and cite all my stuff. Sometimes they've been chosen as a reviewer, and they think that you should cite their stuff because it is centrally relevant to what's actually Yeah, oh, I totally that's agree. Happened, that's happened to us a few times. Yeah? Mm. Absolutely. Where they're going to, well, we've, we've sent it to her in the first place because she knows exactly what she's talking about, and then her candid remark is, well, you should cite my stuff, and you go and read her stuff and think... How did we miss this body of literature? Yeah. This is what are the odds of this actually existing? This is fantastic. Well, we're sticking all this stuff indefinitely. Yeah. And then, of course, there's cite my peripherally relevant material, or I will come round to your house and burn down your pets, which is kind of the I, I suppose something that is more normal. <laughs> yeah, I would say so too. Yeah, it also. Uh, <laughs> you end up with a little bit of unblinding of the review process. So there's only so much of it you can do. Yeah. Well, we uh, better wrap it up for today. Uh, thanks for, for listening. And uh, if you like what you hear, make sure you rate us on, uh, on iTunes. Um, that'll really help us a lot. 